Well, God's ways are not always our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. And oftentimes we uh, misunderstand um, what He's doing. And um, we find that uh, happens often in the Scripture. Uh, one place that comes to my mind is Habakkuk, or Habakkuk uh, chapter 1, verses 12 and following. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their nets, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things they ca- their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? God was bringing Babylon to judge Israel or Judah, and uh, Habakkuk didn't understand how God could use those less righteous than they to bring discipline into their lives. And so he was confused and he he doesn't end the book that way, but he begins the book with, with just wondering how God could do such a thing. Well, that idea of people misunderstanding God uh, re- reverberates throughout Scripture. And we see it here in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. We see it in verse 4 when we misunderstand. God pours his, our griefs upon His servant, and yet that is misunderstood. Secondly, we notice that upon the servant who bore our iniquities, He was pierced through, and it was for our transgressions that He was. God called, caused all of our sin to fall upon Him. But then finally we find that He's the one who gave us peace. The chastening of our well-being, our peace, it fell upon Him. He's the one who brought us into a peaceful relationship with God. Let's consider those verses this morning as we think through these, uh, this part of Isaiah 53. First of all, God poured His iniquity upon the servant, and yet that idea was misunderstood by the people not only of Isaiah's day, but the people of our Lord Jesus' day as well. We read, Surely our griefs He Himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Now there's two words of emphasis in that first that first clause, that first stanza, and it is surely and it is he. 
Um, the word he is actually printed in the Hebrew text. It's a pronoun. You don't need to have it with, with a verb. Um, it's the same in Greek. When you use a pronoun with a verb, you're emphasizing the pronoun. He is being emphasized. And surely is being emphasized well because it's drawing, uh, it's drawing a conclusion. It might even be a startling conclusion. It may be said, like, surely he's the one that, that did this. So we have to look up above at the context to kind of get the feel for what, the, what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah 53, 1 and following, Who has believed our, our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root from uh, out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him. No appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Surely, surely He has borne our griefs. He Himself has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. That idea of griefs and sorrows is not just that which is outward, but it's that which also is inward. When we struggle with something in our hearts or our uh, our are struggling with, with the pain of a situation. Well, for example, we just talked, just prayed for the Roth, uh, the Reason family this morning. They're, they're not struggling physically, though they may end up struggling physically if, they, if, it, if this overwhelms them, but their sorrow is basically from the heart. And we probably ought to also say that the sorrows and griefs that we have of heart eventually do find, them, find their expression in our physical lives, do they not? They really do. Well, which one comes first? Well, it's our brokenness that produces our griefs and sorrows. It's our brokenness that ends up destroying our, uh, uh, affecting our spiritual state. So we see then that there's that, that contrast. Surely He Himself bore our griefs, and yet... And this is the contrast. Yet we ourselves, we accounted Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. It's a contrast. Um, That is, in our estimation, Isaiah says, we accounted Him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Like the the song we sang just a few minutes ago. There was a lack of understanding that that the servant of the Lord was bearing the iniquity of his people, not his own. And so they were laying on, they were saying that the servant, they were thinking the servant, uh, they accounted him as the one who was stricken, smitten of God, not anything that they've done. It was the servant. It's the same idea that comes up in Matthew chapter 26 when we read about the Lord Jesus when he's standing before the high priest who said, uh, do you not answer uh, what, is it, what, what is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you, or that is, yeah, bringing into judgment here, I adjure you, I, I'm demanding that you bear testimony by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it. 
Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. A description, uh, uh, an echo back to Daniel. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we need? What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. And that's what it's coming out of actually Isaiah 53. That's what he deserves. He's stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That's how we misunderstood, or that's how the Jews of Christ's day misunderstood. They didn't understand what it was that, that Jesus actually did. They saw Him as guilty before God. Well, He wasn't guilty before God. But oftentimes people today misunderstand Christ and they misunderstand the Gospel. They don't understand that that He is the one who bore our sins. They even mock at it. But we're told, no, He suffered on our account. And so our the understanding of the people, as Isaiah writes, and as we understand it in the New Testament, the, our understanding is corrected in verse 5. No, he, he wasn't pierced. He wasn't smitten by God for something he did. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging we are healed, or by his stripes we are healed. Notice that word, he was pierced. He was pierced through. That, that idea comes up in Isaiah 51. It's only used about... I don't know, six or eight times in the Old Testament. And the idea is being pierced through with a fatal blow. So Isaiah is telling them this one is being pierced through. He's being put to death, as it were. You recall, right, um, Zechariah that talks about they will look upon Him whom they have pierced. And you recognize that John that comes up in his Gospel when Jesus is there, and John even makes reference to the fact, and they will look upon Him whom they pierced. We see it again in Revelation chapter 1. Behold, He is coming, and they will see the one whom they pierced. They will, they, behold, He's coming. The one that they pierced, the one that, that they crucified, the one that they buried was raised from the dead, and He's going to come again. Well, why was He pierced through to death? Why was that laid upon Him? Well, it was as Isaiah says, for our transgressions. Yeah, he was crushed. That idea of being crushed is breaking something all apart. Um, he's, 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 he's crucified. He's crushed. And for what? For our transgressions. We read in verse 6, Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. In the days when Christ was crucified, as we read in Matthew, they taunted our Lord Jesus because they believed that God was the one who was punishing Him for His blasphemy. 
But what we're told is that our iniquity is what sent Christ to the grave. It's our iniquity that caused Him to suffer the piercing and, and the scourging and the um, and the pain, the crushing, the transgressions fell upon him. I think this is probably the most offensive part of the gospel, is it not? I think the most foolish part of the gospel is that Christ was raised from the dead. People just laugh at it. Of course, Christ dying for our sins is also considered foolishness by people as well. Because we see we're, it's even worse now than it was. At least in the ancient world, there was, an, there was an idea that there had to be a sacrifice for sin. Even if it was a pagan idea, there was, a, there was an idea that there had to be sacrifice for sin. And there was a concept of sin. But in our era, the concept of sin is, is, is uh, quickly diminishing. Uh, it's quickly uh, disappearing um, in our discussions. In fact, there was a book written uh, a long time ago by a psychiatrist, I forget his name, Thomas something, called Whatever Happened to Sin? You know, and, uh, and he asked that question. You know, people go to get therapists and they do all this. Nobody ever talks about sin anymore. Thomas Saz, I think that was his name. And it was an interesting book, you know, because he was pointing out that people don't want to face the reality that they are sinners. And we don't want to talk about being a sinner. Oh, we don't want to offend anyone. And so now the gospel is being rephrased. You don't, you don't hear very much about sin. What you hear is, you know, uh, Christ came here to uh, restore a relationship. Well, no, that's true. I'm not going to deny that. But how is the relationship restored? By, the, by His shedding His blood for our sins. And some people want to say, well, Christ is coming here, you know, so you can have peace. Usually they mean subjective peace. So you can have peace and, you know, everything's okay, I'm okay, you're okay. And uh, there's a part of that that's true. No doubt in that, but they want to leave off the sin part. Even in evangelical churches, the concept of sin is, is moving further and further out the door, right? Because we don't want to offend people. The last thing in the world that we want to, that we that we can do is offend people when they come into our church to tell them that they're sinners. But you see, unless there's a concept of sin, there can be no concept of repentance. And what is the gospel anyone? Christ died for our sins. And what are we called to do? We're called to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent. To repent and believe in Christ. The idea of repentance is part of the gospel. But if you don't have sin, there's no point in repentance. And again, that's something else that's being lost. You know, you read about God has a wonderful plan for your life, right? These tracts. I've passed them out, so I know. You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Really. Uh, Frank uh, Curtis, a friend of mine in Denver, used to go to the Bronco football game uh, when they had him on Sundays, and he, would, he had a big banner. And that banner said, God loves some, hates others, which are you? That's kind of offensive, isn't it? It's true. Now, I may not have done that, but... The reality is we hear this over and over again about God's love, but we don't hear about the fact that His love is expressed to us how? In Christ. Right? For God 
demonstrated His own love for us. Romans chapter 5. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now a righteous man would, you know, a righteous man may die for a good cause, like we have people in the military who die for a good cause. You know, you might understand that. But that's not the way it is. You see, God, while we were yet his enemies, while we still hated him, Christ died for us. And that message is being lost today a little bit at a time. As you read different things, you, you'll come across it a lot. So then we notice that He bore our griefs, though we didn't understand that. And so our understanding is corrected. Verse 5, it was because of us that He was pierced through, He was killed, He was crucified, we might say. And because of Him... Um, our well-being, uh, the chastening for our well-being, it fell upon Him. And He w- is the one who's by His stripes we are healed. Now, that's picked up a lot in certain circles, right? Um, where Christ died for us, therefore we're going to be healed. It's a done deal, right? If you have faith. Um, so, um, But that's not the main point. See, the root cause of all of our suffering is sin. We live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. God cursed the ground from which Adam was taken. Why did He curse the ground instead of Adam? I think that the imagery, at least in some sense, points to the fact that Adam was taken from the ground. And so to curse the ground is to curse the very source of Adam's life. right? The The very source of his physical being. And God cursed it. And ever since then, there's been this this uh, this um, there's been this uh, ongoing, continuing building of a broken world. Amen. That doesn't mean that everybody did everything wrong all the time. That would be an overstatement. But what it does mean is that everything that we did was from the perspective of someone who's broken. And so, when he says that our, by his stripes, this version says his scourging, but it doesn't matter. By his stripes we're healed. Peter picks up on that and mentions it too, but it's not about physical healing. It's about the sin that whose consequences was the physical realm. Okay, our biggest problem is not that we're going to get sick and die. Our biggest problem is that we, we're broken and we're fallen. So the biggest problem, the root cause of all things, of all of our problems, comes down to our rebellion against God, our rejection of Him, our, our sin. And so yes, because of His stripes, His scourging, in fact, you could just put it all up there and run it together, trans, uh, His... Um, uh, his being pierced through, his being crushed, um, all of that, uh, put it all together because of his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, because of all of that, because of that, we are healed. We're healed. Amen. Now, does that mean that God never does heal people? And the answer is no. Now, I have friends who believe that God doesn't, that God 
doesn't work. They call them miracles. I don't like to call them miracles. I believe that God works supernaturally. Because my view is that the miracles that we see in the Scripture were miracles because they're related to signs. So they're signs and wonders. And I don't think those occur anymore. But I do believe that people are healed by a supernatural power, by God. He does it without, without medication. So, yeah, do, do we have people come up in front and we lay hands on them and, and, and pray for them? Yes. That's what, that's what we do. Why? Well, we're trusting God. We don't say, God, you have to heal him now. What we're saying is that, God, this is our prayer for him. And we believe that, yes, you are more than able to do what we ask. You're, you're more than able to do above all that we ask or think. Yes. But we submit our desires to the will of God because we know first and foremost and most importantly that we are healed spiritually. Our standing with God is restored. And um, the reality is, folks, we're all going to die. One way or another, at whatever time, the day will come. And it comes faster than we think. So what's really important? What's really important to you? That you have money? That you have health? That you get to go to the school you want? What's most important to you? Well, for me, the most important for me is that my Savior loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul's words of faith, I do not nullify the grace of God For if salvation comes by works of the law, then Christ died in vain. But I trust Him who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's where our hope needs to be. Then finally we notice that this servant of the Lord has... um, has brought us into a peaceful relationship with God. It's not as clear in the New American Standard, but the chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. Um, It has to do with peace. Um, It's the servant who brought about peace. And uh, oftentimes people, um, Christian people, and they're well-intended, I don't mean any offense to them, and I don't disagree with them totally, but their first focus is on subjective peace. Now, it's nice to have subjective peace. For instance, when Paul says, you know, um, um, in Philippians chapter 4, finally, if there's anything um, true, if there's anything, you know, uh, it's better to read it. My mind is not, uh, I'm not um, able to remember it. In Philippians chapter 4, Look at what the Apostle Paul says.
Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellent excellence, and if anything worthy of praise dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, does that mean we are going to have subjective peace? Maybe, but not necessarily. When Christ died on the cross for us, did we have subjective peace or objective peace? In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Having then been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Does he mean we have subjective peace with God or objective peace with God? Objective. It's objective peace. We may have subjective peace, and that's okay, but that's not the primary thing. In fact, we could say this, that our, the objective peace that we have with God we are at peace with God right now. Um, he's no longer angry with us. We're no longer enemies. We're, we're in a peaceful relationship. Because that is true, then therefore I should have, um, you know, I should have peace, peace of heart, peace of mind. Will it always be that way? Well, no, because I live in a, I'm, I'm a fallen person and I struggle with peace and I go back and forth. But what does Paul mean when he says... <clears throat> And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He means that as you think about the peaceful relationship you have that has been worked out for you by Christ, you have to be, as it were, amazed, right? Dwell upon this fact that you were an enemy of God's and that because of Christ, you are not now an enemy of God. You are at peace with Him. As you think about that, what happens? Well, it focuses your attention on Christ Jesus. It will keep your heart and mind on Christ because of what He has done, not because of how I feel. Now, am I saying that you won't feel peace? No. I don't mean that at all. I just mean that that's not, that's not, the, that's not the main point. Peace is something that we acquire as we dwell upon the gracious work of our God. And the peace that we have isn't feeling good about the world around us. It's understanding that you know, God does love us and He does have a wonderful plan for our lives. He really does. Yes, he does. And, we're, and we're at peace because of what Christ has done. Though we were sheep who have gone astray, though we all turn to our own way, the Lord caused the iniquity of Saul to fall on him. Are you embracing that this morning? I pray so. I pray that you embrace the Savior that's revealed to us in Isaiah 53, 
Don't misunderstand His work. He didn't die for anything He did. He died for us. If you're trusting in Him, He died for you. I mean, He died for you, therefore you... you <laughs> it's, like, it's what Christ has done for us. That is important. Don't, don't live another day if you don't know the Lord Jesus. If you're not trusting in Him to establish your peace with God. You'll never know peace until you know the peace that Christ gives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for your love and your goodness to us. We pray that you would um, you would grant that we would have a sense of peace, a subjective peace. There's that's a good thing to have, but it has to be grounded upon the objective peace that we have in Christ. We pray that we would take Isaiah 53 to heart. How that Christ has borne our iniquities. He's brought us to the place where we are now at a peaceful standing with You. Yes, many times in our past we misunderstood. I know I misunderstood. But when the when Christ was when Christ filled my heart, then I began to understand my standing with You is because of Him and Him alone. We thank You and we praise You through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.